So we do have a Bible study in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Let's read as Paul the Apostle, inspired by the Spirit of God. He writes, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sin. And of course, Paul, as he has made the case, given the theme of the gospel of Christ that is able to, uh, has the power uh, for salvation for those who believe, he began to, to lay out the case in chapter 1 telling us that we're all guilty before God, that we have all sinned. And of course, he wraps it up in chapter 3, as in verse 19, he says that all of mankind, all the world stands guilty before God. And of course, later on, he says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we're not left in a hopeless state. You see, he tells us then of the doctrine of justification, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 3, that we have been studying. And in this doctrine of justification, justification being a legal term, means being declared righteous, that it doesn't come by works. It doesn't come by us trying to earn it or us trying to merit it. It comes as it is freely given to us by grace through faith in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. So we have looked at this very important doctrine of justification. And you see, one of the things that we have been pressing on the radio, and I keep pressing to you as well, that the systematic teaching of the Word of God is so critical because even Christians don't have a clear understanding, really, of the doctrine of justification or, or salvation. There are churches that you can stand outside of that you ask the people if they come out, why do you think that you should be uh, led into heaven or uh, that that, uh, you know, you, you can go to heaven and they'll give you all kinds of answers. They'll say, because I belong to this church or I've done these things or I was a good husband and a good wife. And we know that salvation is a free gift as we're going to continue to see here even as Paul continues with this doctrine of justification given to us. And now in this, this section that we're going to read today as we finish the chapter, that we're going to read that through one man's work it had repercussions on all of humanity Humanity. And Paul the Apostle goes way back to the beginning of the world to Adam. And what we're going to read, first of all, for us to understand is that Paul writes that Adam was real, that he was a real historical person. And I mention that because there are those and even Christians who may be even skeptical about Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden and all of that. And we know that in one event in history, Adam chose to sin and eat of the forbidden fruit, Genesis chapter 3, and because of his actions of this one man, Adam, the repercussions were great. And in Romans chapter 5 here, as we draw attention, as we just read in verse 12, to two of the consequences of Adam's sin and failure. First of all, that sin entered into the world. Through one man, sin entered the world. Adam ushered in sin, which brought in a fallen world. And it brought suffering. It brought, you know, sickness and sorrow and disease when Adam sinned. The world became a fallen creation because sin entered into it. And Adam sinned for the whole human race because we are his descendants. He acted as our federal headship. Sometimes it's called the natural headship. That's a term that theologians use to mean that Adam represented all of mankind. And now we were born with the sin nature. And sometimes that, that people, they don't like to hear that, particularly maybe non-Christians. What do you mean born with the sin nature? And, and, you know, especially if they have a newborn baby. 
that newborn baby that's so beautiful and seems so innocent, are you telling me that this baby has a sin nature? Yes, because you just wait, right? You just wait a few months from now when they start walking and they start talking how they're going to throw fits, they're going to push down their siblings, they're going to steal cookie from the cookie jar, they're going to lie, and you see, we know as parents that we have to teach our children obedience. We have to teach them to tell the truth. We have to tell them what is right because we're all born with that sin nature. So here Paul is writing about something that's very important for us to understand that the first repercussion that happened as a result of Adam's sin and failure is that sin entered into the world and then secondly thus death entered into the world. Death spread to all men because all sin. And not only do we see a fallen world where there is Again, disease, suffering, and sin, but there's death. And it came because of Adam's sin. God told Adam on that day that you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that you shall surely die. So death and sin came into the world because of Father Adam did eat of that tree. You see, people can deny the Bible. They can say that Adam in the Garden of Eden is a myth or just a story. The creation story is a bunch of baloney. But Adam and Eve are in real people written in the Word of God for us. And the reality is, is that everyone dies. Death comes to every person. There is physical death. There is spiritual death. And it's because of sin. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5 tells us that we were dead in trespasses, but God has made us alive together with Christ. So we have, because of sin, spiritual death and physical death. Now, I want to quickly point out something. Listen, this is really important. I think it's extremely important, especially in our culture and what our kids are being taught. And it's important for us as believers to believe what the Word of God has to say and to trust the Word of God. Remember this verse, when you talk to those who are Christians and they say, well, I believe in evolution and that man evolved and there could have been other civilizations around before Adam and Eve. You see, when somebody says that and somebody embraces that, they're taken away from the very gospel that is given to us in God's word. And that is Adam brought sin into the world and the last Adam, Jesus Christ, brought righteousness. And to say that man evolved, there's other civilizations, to say that, that man evolved from a primitive man to modern man and death took place and through animal life and through plant life, through the evolutionary processes that took millions of years, what you're saying is that God brought death through his creation. And you see the Genesis account tells us that when God created, he created and he said, this is good. Adam, you eat of that tree and you shall surely die. Adam had not seen death. Death had not come into the world. And you're saying that death has come because of evolution. Paul specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Adam was the first man on the earth who was made of the dust. And we know that that correlates with what the Genesis account tells us. Jesus believed in Adam and Eve. He said, in the beginning, you know that he made them male and female. Speaking of Adam and Eve. And so the word of God is very, very clear to me that sin and death came through Adam and affected all of mankind. Sin and death did not come through evolution. And Paul will continue to make his case that through Jesus Christ, one man's righteousness and obedience, Jesus Christ, the last Adam, comes justification for us. 
And unfortunately, there are many, many Christians. And I've talked to Ken Ham personally from Answers in Genesis. He has Creation Museum out in Kentucky. And he's frustrated, he told me, because 80% of pastors believe in some kind of evolution. There's the SD, you know, gap theories, all this stuff. And unfortunately, that there are Christians and even churches and denominations that do not believe that the first 11 chapters of Genesis is inspired by God. When we have the prophets that put their stamp of approval on it, and they believe in it, and Jesus himself believed in it. So I want to believe Jesus and what the Word of God has to say. And so the very foundation of the gospel is attacked when we deny the Genesis account of Adam and Eve. Through him, sin entered into the world, verse 12. Thus death spread to all men because all sin. Let's continue reading verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So these verses, people think, what is being said here? Well, when you look at the Old Testament genealogy from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, who was the lawgiver, people died. The only exception was Enoch, who was raptured. Enoch, who personally, I believe, gives us a sneak preview of the blessed hope, the rapture of the church. He is taken out as Enoch was walking with God and then he was no more. He was taken out before the judgment came down upon the world in the, in the flood of, of Noah, the worldwide flood. And I think that's a picture that it points to that the church, that we are going to be raptured, the blessed hope, before judgment comes down on a Christ-rejected world. Stay tuned. We'll talk more about it in our prophecy update and as we go through the book of Revelation. But there wasn't, um, you know, any law at that time till Moses and, and everyone else died. And they died because um, they were ones that we were seeing that they were affected because of Adam's sin. There is still in sin. It wasn't imputed because there was no law. In other words, it's kind of like this. You drive down I-25, the speed limit's posted, isn't it? 75, some places 65. You go 125 miles an hour, you're going to get a ticket by the state patrol or by law enforcement. Now, you go over to Germany, to the Audubon, and you drive the same speed, 125 miles an hour. That's just as fast, just as dumb, but there's no speed limit that's posted. There's no law, and you won't get ticketed for breaking the law. Going too fast, as there's no law that's posted there, what the speed limit is. This is what Paul is pointing out. It was Adam's sin that caused death to come upon everyone, including me, including you. It wasn't the breaking of the law because man died from Adam, what Paul is telling us, all the way till Moses, about 2,500 years. In other words, Adam polluted and corrupted all of mankind. Because of one man's sin, it affected all of us. The law was too late to prevent sin and death, and it was too weak to save us from sin and death. And the law declares us that we do sin. Really what Paul is telling us is this, that a person doesn't become a sinner when he sins. He sins because he is a sinner. That's what's being told to us in the scriptures. So Paul writes in verse 14, Adam who is a type of him who was to come. Adam is a type, a picture if you would. So what is being told to us here, how is Adam a, a type or a picture of Jesus? Well, first of all, both Adam and Jesus were completely sinless from the beginning. 
Now, of course, Adam would end up sinning, and Jesus lived a perfect sinless life, but both were sinless from the beginning, and secondly, both did something that had consequences for all of mankind. So Paul now talks about the contrast between Adam's work and Jesus' work, uh, in other words, uh, reminding us what has already been declared in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and Paul showing the ruin of mankind that we read coming through Adam verses 12 through 14 now is going to tell us of the hope of mankind that we have through Jesus Christ beginning in verse 15 let's read that but the free gift is not like the offense for if by one man's offense many died much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded to many and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification in verse 17 for if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one much more those who received abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ so Paul given us now the contrast between Adam's work and Jesus work Adam gave an offense that had consequences on the entire human race. We read that many died. Jesus gives a free gift that has consequences for the entire human race. The grace of God abounds to many, to those who come and believe in him. Death reigned from Adam. Life reigns from the last Adam. That's the title of Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that he's the last Adam. So because of Adam's offense, we learn here in Romans chapter 5 that through his offense, number one, sin entered into the world, right? Second of all, death came to all. And then thirdly, judgment and condemnation entered the world. But the free gift, notice here, underline that, the free gift is justification that comes through Jesus Christ because many offenses were laid upon him. The offenses of the world laid upon Jesus on Calvary's cross. That justification coming by faith. Jesus said in John chapter 11, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So as I point out to you, salvation cannot be earned. It cannot be merited. You cannot work for your salvation. Verse 15, the free gift. Verse 17, the gift of righteousness. We know that in chapter 6, he will say the gift of eternal life. We already saw in Romans chapter 3 that we are justified freely through grace, by grace through faith, by the redemption of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So we cannot purchase salvation. Salvation is the work that Jesus Christ did for you and for me. And so we marvel at that. And whoever lives and believes in me, Jesus said, you shall never die. You've heard the saying perhaps before that uh, if you're born once, you're going to die twice. You're going to die physically and you're going to die spiritually. If you're born twice, we're all physically born, but you're born again by the Spirit of God, you're going to die once physically unless we're raptured, of course, which is what I'm praying for. 
But in verse 18, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came, notice, to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, and so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden with all of his perfection, all of his beauty, and gave him a commandment. Don't eat of that tree over there. And what did Adam do? He hated that tree. He disobeyed God. And so God's judgment came to all men. But Jesus, who died for us, taken on the judgment for all of our sins, the result now is justification. We have a living hope, Peter writes in his epistle, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not a dead hope. So Paul, in this section of Romans, we see that Adam and Jesus represents all of humanity, and everyone is identified in either Adam or Jesus. Again, it goes back to that whole idea of federal headship. Adam and Jesus are two representatives of the human race. The first Adam, again, uh, the last phrase of verse 14, to read it once again, Adam, a type of him who was to come speaking of the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Now, again, Jesus is the last Adam. There is no other. There is no other Savior. Adam was a type of Jesus. Now, keep in mind, when we talk about typology, when we talk about figures, pictures in the Bible, types can be either comparisons or a contrast. And of course, here we see a contrast between Adam who sinned and contrasting his disobedience to Jesus' obedience, his righteous act of dying for us on Calvary. So Adam... He blew it in the garden, the Garden of Eden. Jesus, he came through in the Garden of Eden. It was Jesus that submitted to the will of the Father and said, not my will, but your will be done. Adam, he was disobedient. He ate of that tree. I just imagine, I was thinking about this, that Adam probably isn't a real popular person in heaven. I mean, I think about, I'm looking forward to reunions with family and people that have belonged to our church over the years that have gone home to be with the Lord. I look forward to talking with Paul the Apostle. I think we're going to have time to do that because we've got all eternity. You know, to talk with David, to talk with Peter, to talk of the, the saints of the Old and New Testament. But Adam, you know, is, I think, what would I say to Adam? Because every time I'm out pulling weeds in the summertime, I'm thinking, this is because of Adam. You know, <laughs> dumb Adam, because of what he did. I got these weeds. And the other day, I was fixing the mailbox, and I stuck my hand in the grass and got all these stickers in my hand. And it's like, that dumb Adam. So I imagine that he's not real, real popular. <laughs> but he's been redeemed, just as we've been redeemed. And Adam hid from God there in the garden. Adam, where are you? Jesus submitted to God. And Adam sinned, and Jesus was without sin. So Adam is a type of Jesus Christ in that he's the opposite, the mirror image, if you would. He blew it. Jesus came through. Adam, one man, his sin caused repercussions in all of humanity. Jesus Christ's work brought salvation for you and for me who believe. So the question, listen, for every single one of you that are here today, and those of you who are listening, the question to answer is this. Who represents you? Who represents you? And I know for a vast majority of us that 
you say Jesus who was triumphant over sin and death? Or was it Adam who brought sin and death? Through Jesus Christ, we're made righteous. It means that positionally he imputes, makes us righteous before God. We cannot do that in our own because Isaiah, as we saw on Wednesday in Isaiah 64, that all of our righteousness are as filthy rags before God. But when we were declared righteous in Jesus Christ, the way that God views you and looks at you, he doesn't see you, he doesn't see me in all our cruddiness, in all our ugliness, in all of our failings. He sees us robed in the righteousness of one man's obedience, Jesus Christ, even as Isaiah 61 says, robed with the righteousness of God that has been imputed to us. We can't come with our own righteousness. And not just positionally, but we're going to see as we get into chapter 6 through 8, very important, those chapters, that God wants to work righteousness in us practically by the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of sanctification. Jesus Christ, the last Adam, died for your sins and rose again. And he lives in you and he lives in me. And he gives us the power to work righteousness in us to live for him, a life pleasing to him. And in verses 20 through 21, it will tell us, which leads to chapter 6, and Paul talking about the abounding grace of God, which we see here in the next two verses. Let's read it now. Verse 20, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What Paul's readers may be asking once again is how does the law work? in all of this? What is the purpose of the law? Paul has shown us already in this letter that he wrote to the Christians at Rome is that it is the law, the knowledge of sin, chapter 3, verse 20. Second of all, the law does not justify us. And now he has shown us in this section of chapter 5 of Romans that the law doesn't even make us sinners. Adam did that. So then what purpose did the law serve? What good was it? Now, we've talked about the purpose, was to make us realize our need for Jesus Christ, for the Savior of the world. Galatians tells us that the purpose of the law was to be a schoolmaster or tutor to drive us to Jesus Christ. And here we see the clear purpose of the law is so that the offense might abound. The law makes man's sin clearer and more obvious by contrasting it with God's holy standard. In other words, the law declares us as sinners. We like to think that I'm pretty righteous. I'm pretty righteous when I compare myself to other people. That I'm a good person compared to that person on the news who did this terrible crime or the person that you know down the street that gets into all kinds of trouble or whatever the case may be. We can look at others, compare ourselves to others and say that I'm righteous, I look good, but we are comparing ourselves to the wrong thing, to wrong you know, perspective. Compare yourself to Jesus Christ. Compare yourself to God's holy standard. And we already saw in chapter 2 to the self-righteous person who thinks that they are righteous before God that Paul says, yeah, you're righteous. You can make it to heaven if you make the standard and perform the standard perfection, God's standard. And none of us do. That's the problem. None of us do. Compare yourself to the one who fulfilled the law, kept the law perfectly, and that is Jesus. 
And when I compare myself to him, I realize how far short I am to God's standard, his perfection. So God's perfect law exposes our flaws and makes our sin abound. The law will make sin abound because I see God's standard. I see the line that God has drawn and I miss the mark and I step over that line, transgression. My heart is, is there to break the law, the battle of the flesh, all of these things. Showing that sin abounds in my heart. So as I've mentioned, the law doesn't make us holy. It shows that we're not holy. The law doesn't make us righteous. It is grace through faith in Jesus that we're declared righteous. But something incredible Paul writes here to take note of, we're almost done, just a couple minutes. That we see the third much more phrase of Paul the Apostle, where sin abound, that grace abounds much more. That is absolutely amazing to me. If sin abounded under the law, then grace abounded much more under Jesus. That phrase abounded much more means abundantly abounded. God makes his grace abundantly abound over abounding sin. Now this is important for us to understand what Paul has been driving at as we move into chapter 6. Paul building on this thought, first of all, many people have the idea that where grace reigns, that's means that there's going to be a disregard for righteousness, a casual attitude towards sin. And there can be this fear that are among, you know, those who tend to be more legalistic that grace and living in grace and the reign of grace means that we think that we can just go out and sin and do whatever we want, that grace winks at sin and unrighteousness, and that's not what the Bible teaches. And when we open up chapter 6 next week, Paul says, should we continue in sin that grace abounds? Certainly not. And he's going to discuss to us something very important, and that is we're dead to sin. Reckon it to be so as an instrument of righteousness that we're no longer slaves to sin. We identify with Christ in this newness of life. All that that we'll look at. But Paul writing to Titus in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we shall live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. In other words, if grace is truly reigning in your life, God's grace then you're going to see that that grace is going to be evident by you desiring to live for him and walk with him and learn of him. And you don't want to sin. Because, Lord, I love you. And you're so incredibly good to me. And, Lord, I have been saved the unmerited favor of God because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And we live in a reign of love. And of course, Paul later in this epistle is going to say that you can sum up the law in one word, and that is love. You'll do more in love in living for the Lord than you'll ever do in your own flesh and energies and, you know, trying to live by the do's and don'ts. It is living by grace and living in the love of Jesus Christ, being at all of his incredible, incredible salvation that he's brought to us. And you see, don't lose that this Christmas. Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She is going to bring forth a son, and his name shall be called Jesus, Yahshua. The Lord thy salvation, that's what Jesus' name means. 
Do you realize that there was a lot of babies that were named Jesus, Yahshua, during the time of Jesus' birth? Matter of fact, I believe Josephus, the Jewish historian, that he mentions 12 different Jesus in his writings during that time. It was a very popular name. But heaven looked down at that baby in the manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago and said that heaven is naming this baby Yeshua, Jesus, the Lord thy salvation. This is the one who's really going to do it. This is the one that you've been waiting for. This is the one, Emmanuel, God with us. You shall call his name Jesus. And he will save his people from what? Their sins. So, Father, thank you. We thank you for the coming of Jesus in our lives. We thank you that this Christmas season, that, Lord, there's a lot of things that can distract us away from what this season is really about. And that is the coming of your son. A child is born, a son is given. And as heaven looked into the face of God himself, wrapped in human flesh, on that night that Jesus was born, they broke out praising. They had to be absolutely amazed that the love of God to send his son to come to give us hope. Even as it was promised to Adam, clear back in the beginning in, in Genesis 3, the first promise of the coming Messiah, that through her seed... Through her seed will come Messiah. And serpent, you may bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And we know that sin and death has been defeated because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross and he rose from the grave. And I pray that living hope that we have, that we would hold dear in our hearts every day, that it would bring us comfort to those of us who perhaps, that maybe we're going through difficulties or we're going through hurt, this, this Christmas season because of a loved one that's gone home. And Lord, maybe perhaps because things are, are hard right now and difficult, that we can turn to you and knowing that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us, that you love us now and you'll never leave us or forsake us. God with us, Emmanuel. I do pray if there's anyone here or in the coffee shop or listening on live stream or perhaps on the radio later, that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, that today is the day of salvation for you, to give your life to him. He's calling you. It's always to come. And Jesus went and died on the cross for you because he loves you. And you see, going to church won't save you or listening to a Bible study. That's good, but it won't save you. If you're raised in a Christian home, the faith of your parents won't save you. Trying to be a good person won't save you. But it's surrendering to him and realizing that you're a sinner in need of his forgiveness. That he's alive and he rose from the grave. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, I've sinned so badly that the Lord can never forgive me. He died for all manner of sin. He died for every one of your sins. And the invitation has come. Be forgiven and have a newness of life, be born again by the Spirit of God. So if that means anything to anyone here this morning, will you pray this prayer right where you're sitting? That Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I confess that I am a sinner in need of forgiveness. 
And I repent. I turn to you now. I change direction. And I give my life and my heart to you. And ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. That this is now my gospel. And I thank you for this new beginning. And for your love for me. And for saving me. I want to know you and walk with you. I want to serve you all the days of my life. Thank you for bringing me here. In Jesus' name. And listen, while we're being respectful, I'm just going to ask, if you are here in the sanctuary, I can't see everybody that's listening to this message, but if you're here and you prayed that prayer, will you put that your hand up and put it back down? Anybody at all at this service? Anybody at all? Just put your hand up, put it down. Raising your hand doesn't save you, but you're saying, listen, today I've made a decision for Christ. And Lord, maybe I don't see everyone there. I know the coffee shop's full. There's others online that are listening. And if you are, I can't see you. Come and tell me after the service. Give us a call during the week because we want to encourage you and bless you. And Lord, I thank you for the work that you're doing in this place. And Lord, I thank you for the Christmas season to remind us that you gave of your son and that the greatest gift, the free gift of salvation is available to all. So, Lord, bless everyone here as we go our way. If those who are traveling this week, I pray you keep them safe. Bless their time with friends or family. And, Lord, help us and keep you the priority in every way. So, Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God is good. Would you please stand? We got a prayer team up front to pray with you.